That is the sound of slurping sake. All right, guys, this is a fun one. Fun? I don't know if fun's quite the word. <laughs> How would you describe it, Agent Ether? My impression when I was looking over all this material was, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of describing it is just wow. Just wow. Okay, you ready to start the intro? Okay. All you. Here we go. For the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description on the link tree. This week's episode, The Enron Scandal. This one was chosen by our Patreon subscribers on Patreon. They voted for this topic, and uh, so we appreciate it for that. If you want, you can also support the show on Patreon. We've got three tiers. The first tier gets you early access and after hours. The second tier gets you bonus episodes. And the third tier gets you um, the right to vote on upcoming topics. So you get to choose what we're going to do next. Pretty exciting stuff. Some topics are, there's a lot to them. And this is one of them. (laughs) This is one where... You know, I say this a lot on the show, but this is one where I go into it thinking, okay, I'll probably spend a couple hours taking notes and I'll be done. And then I just sort of go down the rabbit hole and realize just how much there is to the topic. And I just spend the whole day looking into it or more sometimes today. I just, I started this morning and I just finished like 30 minutes ago. It's true. (laughs) I'm like, can you go to Costco? And he's like, uh, like, no, 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 I cannot. (laughs) <laughs> I go to Costco tomorrow. Too late. I already brought eggs for Easter. Well, I need gas anyways. No, eggs. More <laughs> eggs. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. The Enron scandal. If you're unfamiliar, maybe you're, you know, a little younger. Maybe you were born in the year 2000. I don't know. Maybe I don't know you don't live in the U.S. Yeah, maybe you don't live in the U.S. Well, although Enron was an international company. They had stuff all over the place. So you might have heard of them, even though you weren't born in the U.S. But let's just give a quick description of the company from Wikipedia, just to sort of sort of give a vague idea of what they do. Enron Corporation was an American energy, commodities, and services company based in Houston, Texas. Notice the was. Was, yes, it definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, uh, you know, Wikipedia is, they're very specific with that particular word, You can find certain articles with certain discrepancies, but they tend to be pretty accurate with their is or was. And I tell you what, there's nothing for me, there's nothing more depressing than looking up a celebrity and seeing, you know, such and such was an actor. And I'm like, ah, damn it. You know, that sucks. I kind of like them, you know, but whatever. So anyways, Enron was an energy company based in Houston, Texas. It was founded by Kenneth Lay. We'll we'll hear more about him later. (laughs) 
I'm sure. Good old Kenny boy. In 1985, as a merger between Lay's Houston Natural Gas and Internorth, both relatively small regional companies. Before its bankruptcy on December 2, 2001, spoiler alerts, Enron employed approximately 20,600 staff and was a major electricity, natural gas, communications, and pulp and paper company with claimed revenues of nearly $101 billion during 2000. Well, we've got a few things to say about that number. Now, if it sounds too good to be true. Fortune named Enron America's most innovative company for six consecutive years. Now, you might be asking yourself, how does one company do so much stuff? They do electricity. They do natural gas. They do communications. They do pulp and paper. They do all, dude, that's just, that's a very, that's not even all the stuff they did, actually. They did a ton of stuff, but we'll get into some of that. But you might, yeah, you might be asking yourself, how did they do all that stuff? Well, <laughs> we'll get into it. The company actually has roots going back all the way to 1930 with one of its parent companies, which kind of makes it all the sadder that it, you know, that it had a demise because it's kind of nice to see companies that last for so long, but to see them, to see the company chugging along for decades and decades for a hundred years or something. And then all of a sudden you get some bad leadership and then boom, the company's dead just kind of overnight. It seems like, so it's kind of, kind of sad in that regard, but anyways, that's neither, neither here nor there. The company started off as like a natural gas company basically, but it quickly expanded into other areas. The, Company culture was basically at the well when it was merged in 1985 under the leadership of Kenneth Lay. There was basically they instilled um, an insatiable greed, I guess is a good way to put it. <laughs> there, I mean, you could look up interviews and people who were talking about how the company was run. It was aggressive. Yes, aggressive is a is a good word for it. Yeah, they and, did this thing called rank and yank. Yes. Go ahead. Tell us about that, Agent Ether. So they would have performance reviews through their performance review committee or PRC. And most of us get reviews, let's say, every year from our bosses. And they tell you you're doing a good job and they tell you where you could improve and you nod your head and you sign your paperwork and it goes to HR. No big deal. So here you have a scale of one to five with one being the best and five being the worst. And at any given time, 10% of the staff was given a five, no matter what. It was like a curve, but in the opposite direction. So 10% of the staff would always get the lowest grade. And that was mandatory. It was mandatory. And then they would be given two weeks to improve their grade or they would be fired. Wow. So they were constantly bringing in fresh people. And of course, getting a good scale wasn't really based on performance. It was more on who you knew, and how much money you were bringing into the company. Right. Well, that second part you mentioned was very, very important. So we might be skipping ahead a little bit, but it's all right. This case is such kind of a mess. It's really hard to organize how to present the stuff. So it doesn't really matter. I guess we have to skip around no matter what. So part of that was they you, this rating system encouraged people to make deals and do trades that were large money trades 
then they would do they would do the trade and they would get a bonus based on that trade. That's true, yes. Whether or not the trade eventually ended up making the company money. You could do a $20 million trade that ended up costing the company $5 million six months from now, but that didn't matter. What mattered is you did a $20 million trade for the company and that looked really good and you got a bonus for doing so. So you have... The, I mean, you can look up quite a lot as far as interviews and what people are saying about the culture of the company. This just gives you a little taste of what it was like there, how people were basically not just rewarded, but encouraged to have bad behavior. It was a culture. It was a uh, toxic culture. I'm not sure if toxic is quite the right word because a lot of people made a lot of money. I want to make a lot of money. I know, right? But like people working there, you know, particularly in the trading room, would get bonuses all the time. We're talking about millions of dollars people would make. We're not talking about CEOs. We're talking about just average people sometimes would have these very significant bonuses. So it was a cutthroat environment. It was aggressive. But a lot of people, people, it seemed like people enjoyed the environment too, looking at some of the interviews because they were making a ton of money. And you get the impression now, they didn't say this specifically, but you get the impression that, you know, it, let's say it was everybody stabbing each other in the back to try to further their own goals. But it's like, okay, well, if, you know, if Johnny stabs me in the back this week and gets a $50,000 bonus, I'll just do the same thing to him next week and get a $50,000 bonus. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I, I didn't get the impression that they were all that concerned about that because the people who thrived in this environment they were all basically, they seem like a bunch of psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a quote about that somewhere. Let me see. Okay. All right. Mark Button, criminology professor at Portsmouth University, one study said, he said, one study shows fraudsters are likely to be extroverts with an ability to lie and rationalize fraud as a normal sort of task, just shifting money around. And Financial Times reporter Dan McCrum says in his experience of numerous frauds, such businesses are run by psychopaths with the ability to look people in the eye and lie and lie again. Yeah, and that's that's the impression I got. That's I didn't see that quote. That's a very good quote. That's the impression I got watching a lot of these former employees being interviewed. I'm like, these people are all a bunch of fucking psychos. <laughs> yeah, but it takes that kind of person to run that kind of company. Yeah, I guess. I mean... I would be scared for my life if I worked in that place. These people like this, their eyes don't look normal. You know, like I would be honestly terrified speaking with these people. Like this guy, as soon as I turn around, is he going to literally stab me in the back? Am I going <laughs> to, am I going to get murdered right now? That's kind of, you know, just the, these people are not normal people. You know, <laughs> I'm finally recovered from being sick, even though I'm still like a tiny, tiny bit sick, but I'm mostly better. Ah, that was brutal, man. That was that was like over, that was bad. It was over a month. I wonder if that qualifies as long COVID. I don't know. Whatever. But anyways, I'll stop complaining. I'll stop being a little sissy. All right. So at the time of the, uh, of the bankruptcy, when it went under, um, Enron was the USA's largest bankruptcy ever, but it was surpassed not that much later by WorldCom in 2002 and Lehman Brothers in 2008. Both incidents, I think, would make for a good episode at some point in the future, maybe, particularly the 2008 meltdown, because I think a lot of people know that, you know, bad financial stuff happened 
in 2008, but I don't think most people fully appreciate what actually happened there. And it's, it's a story every bit at least as crazy as the Enron story. So I think that would be a good one to do too in the future. We could do a modern story, but in the same light. Oh, I mean, yep. Yeah, there's it's happening right now. There's it's like a pattern going back even before the Great Depression, just over and over again, like fudging yep. the books. Yep. Have you heard? Did you listen to our uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve episode? No, I did not. Well, there's financial shenanigans going back way back then the finan- the uh, federal reserve was created in 1913 but before that they in 2000 or no in uh, 1908 the banks basically caused on purpose a financial collapse to hold politicians over the barrel to encourage them to pass the federal reserve essentially so in 2000, 2000 i mean in ni- 1913 <laughs> In 1913, they created the Federal Reserve, but they did so in secret. And the Federal Reserve is, guess what? It's not federal. It's a private entity. <laughs> private, yeah. And it does not have any reserves. You know, there's people who were alive when that happened. They're old people, but they're out there. There's not that many of not them left. Not that many of them, but oh my yeah. God, to be that, to live twice as long as some people, two lifetimes. Yeah. That yeah, amazing. And though that's like living history, you know. And I I keep hoping that maybe they come up with some sort of genetic treatment to make people live longer because we don't live that long, you know. No, not that long at all if you think about it. But anyways, let's not get all morbid and stuff. No, and it's not morbid. It's awesome that we die early. No, that they've seen so much. Oh yeah, but they're also very very old, and they're gonna kick off any day now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. I, I don't want them to kick off. I want them to stay around so they can tell us their stories, you know? Yeah. But anyways, let's let's not uh, worry about that. That's kind of, I don't like it. It's well, kind of stressful. That's a half empty, half full sort of a scenario. Yeah, and it's half empty because, <laughs> <laughs> because we're not going to even make it that far. <laughs> so let's move on move, to some... Move along. To some conspiracy stuff. Okay. Which at the very least will hopefully be entertaining and not morbid and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for ruining everybody's evening. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, that was the largest one. They were the seventh largest corporation in the USA at some point. They have been described in many ways, but one of the descriptions I found that I particularly enjoyed was that somebody said that Enron was a house of cards built over a pool of gasoline. I also read they were the darling child of Wall Street. Oh, yeah. Wall Street loved the fuck out of them. (laughs) They were voted like the most innovative company or whatever, like six years in a row by, I think it was, what was it, Forbes magazine. They kept getting all these stupid awards and stuff, and even including... Up until like the very last minute until they went bankrupt, pretty much, you know, nobody, nobody saw it coming. You know, even Wall Street insiders were taken by surprise. Maybe the people who sold their stock in insider trading and got the hell out of there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those insiders. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So they had a name that they or a nickname, I guess, for Kenneth Lay and Jeffrey Skilling, who we'll get to. They were referred to as the smartest guys in the room. Did you see that one, Agent Ether? Isn't that the movie? Well, the yeah. that memory's name? That's where they got the name for the book and then the movie, yeah. The Smartest Guys in the Room. But that's what they were referred to, you know, when they were in person. But you could also find um, anecdotes where 
if somebody crossed them, they would get pissed off and fire them like right away. I heard they had temper, temper, tempers. Yes, exactly. So that's also fairly typical of psychopaths, right? And you get surrounded by these yes men who have to go along no matter what if they want to keep their jobs. But that's, I don't know. I don't know how much that fits into the story. Maybe it's all just hearsay. Who knows? Another side note is that Enron had been the largest donor to G.W. Bush's election campaign. And that's, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about their connection to the Bushes, but that's another part of the story. So Jeffrey Skilling was the COO, the president, and eventually the CEO. And in one interview, he said that I did not do anything that wasn't in the interest in the shareholders of the company. And that was at the congressional hearings after he had already resigned and they were grilling him for stuff and, you know, looking for stuff to charge him for after the company had gone bankrupt. And even after the company had already fallen, he refused to admit any wrongdoing. He yeah, just his, said his defense attorney would argue that he didn't commit a crime or, or he did commit a crime, but it was never to profit from him. It was to save the company. You have to save the company and protect the shareholders. Oh, yeah. He was yeah, he was protecting the shareholders. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> um, then Kenneth Lay also, this, he was the CEO. And these people changed around positions throughout the years. So, I bet they got paid for all of them. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So I'm not going to be real specific on their positions. But Kenneth Lay, like we already mentioned, he was the original CEO and pretty much the head honcho of the whole thing. He also refused to admit anything that was you know, that he did anything wrong. And I also saw, they showed in a documentary in the, um, it was, uh, this, you know, the smartest guys in the room that that documentary, they show a little blurb of Kenneth Lay's wife who said that, um, she was talking about the $300 million that Kenneth had earned as the CEO of the company. And she said, well, it's all gone. You know, she said that all that money that he earned, there's nothing left of it. I was like, okay, She's just as dirty as he is because <laughs> $300 million, it's, you can't spend that much money. It's not possible to spend that much money and have nothing left to show for it. Well, they went after her for her estate, but in the end, they're like, well, the estate's, you know, limited. It's pretty insolvent. She doesn't have any assets. I think what they really meant is her money is tied up in offshore accounts. Well, yeah, clearly she's hiding those somewhere. and. We can look in, there's other episodes I want to do on things like the Panama Papers and things where people have been caught red-handed hiding assets overseas. She might even have been caught up in the Panama Papers. I don't know. And there's there's another one too. It was like the Panama, whatever. That's a whole other. I definitely want to get to that at some point though, because it's it's pretty crazy what people get away with. Like I always say in the, in the show, I've said before many times, if you're going to do crime, go big. Go big. Go real big. Or go home to yeah. your sad little apartment instead of your mansion. If you can steal a couple thousand dollars, whether it's shoplifting or Grand Theft Auto or whatever, you go to jail. You might go to jail for a long time. If you can still steal tens of millions or billions, you'll be all right. You know? <laughs> you will. You might not go to jail at all. You go to like a halfway house and then get out on probation. Yeah. Or you might go to a minimum security prison where you know you have you have work releases and stuff it's it's not a fair legal system no, <laughs> no not at all not. but anyways um let's get back to this show i guess so as the company was collapsing 
the top, we might touch on this again later, but right now I'm just doing sort of highlights because it's, I don't know where, so we're going to, I'm going to do like some brief highlights and then maybe we'll get into more depth on some of the stuff. But as the company was collapsing or before it collapsed, all of the top members, all the top brass, the CEOs, the CEOs, the CFOs, all those, you know, all those three letter FOs or whatever, they all sold their shares in the company. Um, maybe not all of their shares, but they sold a significant amount of shares, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in stock while the price of the shares were really high, as high as $90 a share because they knew what was coming. They knew what was going to happen and they were sort of cashing out while they still could. Meanwhile, they froze the retirements accounts of the employees who were not able to cash out on this stuff and they were left with nothing. So this is the kind of people we're dealing with. If you watch interviews, they pretend to be these moral people who are just doing the best they can. We're hardworking people. We're trying our best to do blah, 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 America, whatever it is they're saying. But in reality, they're just scumbags. They were just stealing from whoever they could to make money for themselves. Allegedly, you know, I'm not naming anybody (laughs) specifically here. Some of these people are still around and they still have a butt ton of money and they could still sue the shit out of me. So I'm not talking about specific people. I'm talking just sort of in general generalities. You know, that's what people would do. Gen general. How do you say that word? General generalities in general. In general. There you go. That's <laughs> there we go. All right. Some of them are felons, though, and that's not stating an incorrect fact. Yeah, that is not that is true. Some of these are convicted felons that we're talking about here, and they were convicted of crime. So, so we, if, if somebody's convicted of a crime, you can talk about that crime. But saying that somebody's a piece of garbage might still be slander or libel, which is, I think it's slander. Bad. I don't know. You, you still can't call people that, apparently, especially if they have a lot of money. And they, on the offhand chance, they listen to this podcast. <laughs> Very unlikely, I know. But still, it's possible. Maybe, um, you know, maybe Kenneth Lay is... Not him. He's actually dead. But maybe some of the other people are fans of conspiracies. Who knows? I don't know. But anyways, all in all, insiders sold about a billion dollars of stock. A billion with a B. Bapa. Bravo. Beta. Billion. While the company was about to go bankrupt. They knew it was going to happen and they cashed out big time. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some more, I guess. Well, let's talk about Kenneth Lay. He was the CEO, right? He came from like a poor background, from a poor family. He was the son of a preacher. And he went on and he got his PhD in economics. One of his things was he was a huge proponent of deregulation. And deregulation is a big part of this story. Of this mess. This mess, yeah. He was a huge fan of Ronald Reagan's work. And, you know, Ronald Reagan has a, had a slogan one of many, but he said, government is not a solution to the problem. Government is the problem, meaning that government regulation is not good. Free markets are good. If you allow the markets to be free, then they will take care of themselves, right? But the thing is, what so what they're sort of basing this on is Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nation. This is a little bit of a tangent, but that's sort of one of the major contributing works to capitalism 
But what they're doing is they're only cherry picking stuff from that work because yes, Adam Smith does say that free markets are good. And if you have things like I'm paraphrasing, right? So, and plus I read this many, many years ago, so it's a little fuzzy in my memory, but still, so he does, he is a proponent of things like free markets. But on the other hand, he also says that you do need government regulation because without regulation, bad shit happens. Paraphrasing. He didn't say that exactly. But anyways. There's just so many examples of this, what you just said. Yeah. And yet, it keeps happening. Yep. Keeps happening. Keeps happening. <laughs> it keeps happening. Nah, free markets are good, guys. That's good. Well, we're about to give one example of many. So, you know, this is a good example of what happens when you have a free market. We're, we're going to get into it. As soon as I can get my headphones adjusted, they keep falling off my head. All right, so. Uh, it's because you're going bald. Oh, shut up. <laughs> shut up. I, I Actually, I am a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not that bald. It hurts. The truth hurts. But it will yeah. set you free. I don't care. I don't have to look at myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it, without going into too much detail, in the 1980s, there were, especially uh, particularly under the Reagan administration, there was this idea of deregulation and that's where this idea of trickle-down economics became really popular and was actually implemented in the government. But anyways, so in the 80s, when this story starts, really in 1985, when the merger of these companies happened to create Enron, we have this climate of deregulation and trickle-down economics and all this other stuff. So as I said earlier, there, there was also ties between Kenneth and politics, specifically the Bush family. For example, G.W. Bush apparently made phone calls for, for Kenneth Lay when Bush was the governor of Texas. And they, they, would, they, would, they had this, this very incestuous relationship where there's a lot of... Good, good terminology. A lot of lobbying money and a lot of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. For example, Bush Sr. got billions with a B in government subsidies for Enron. <clears throat> billions. I would love to have billions in subsidies for my business, right? Your podcast? Yeah. My, I mean, Just why not? bring it on. Yeah. The next Joe Rogan. And if you look at some of these, um, some of these lobbying amounts that they lobbied the Bush family, it's in the hundreds of thousands. So it seems completely out of line with the benefit that they actually got, right? And it, it just, it just blows my mind how cheap politicians are to buy. I've seen uh, lobbying amounts as small as $5,000 to buy a politician. $5,000. You could buy some politicians for $5,000. I might be able to come up with five grand. Of course, I'd have to give it to the IRS for taxes, but if it wasn't tax day. Right. I mean, Anybody could come up with $5,000 if they really were motivated to do so. But so it's not like 5,000 in one shot. Usually it's a couple of 5,000. But the point being that these politicians are really cheap, some of them. And in this case, they got a couple hundred thousand dollars and you got billions in benefits. But I am willing to bet that if I dug really deep, you could find a lot more than a couple hundred thousand dollars going back and forth between these families, between Kenneth Lay and the Bush families, 
There's no way that Kenneth Lay got billions in government subsidies for a couple hundred thousand dollars. I'm guessing that there's a lot more going on roundabout ways, a lot more being lined in pockets and other, you know, kind of. Yeah. Like he hired his nephew's son. Yeah, exactly. Kid. Hire your wife as a whatever, or, you know, your best friend's daughter as a whatever and pay them a million bucks. They don't have, you know, just hire their company. Yeah. As a consultant or whatever. And there, there are ways of doing this that are perfectly legal even, but it's, it's crazy to think that our taxpaying dollars are being spent like this and there's nothing we can do about it. It kind of sucks. And I think this is, I think other countries are not nearly as bad as this. You know, I think lobbying is illegal in some of some of them. We have a very, compared to other places, very corrupt government. And I think the dollar amounts are maybe a little more extreme in some cases as well. Not every case, but in some cases. But anyways, what we're talking about here is like first class corruption. Um, I don't want to spend too much time. Because this is not a political show, but I'm not talking about politics here either. This is not a left versus right kind of an issue. This is a, in this specific case, this Enron case, we have specific corruption. And there are plenty of cases of corruption on the left as well. So I'm not trying to say that the right is more corrupt than the left. They're definitely both horrible in a lot of cases. But in this specific case, we're talking about the Bush family and Enron but there were ties to the administration, the Bush administration in general. For example, the vice president, Dick Cheney, met with Enron six times to develop new energy policies, and Dick Cheney refused to show the meeting minutes to Congress. What did he do? Take the fifth? Uh, I mean, I didn't look into it too <laughs> deeply because... It was like, nah. There's, there's so many different facets to this case. Like, we could do a whole case just on the Bush family tie-in easily, right? Because there's so much there. But So I didn't go in a deep dive in each one of these little facets. But the fact that he refused to show the meeting minutes to Congress, I think is very, very suspicious. Okay, so we already said that when they, okay, so when they merged, they had the second largest gas pipeline system in the United States for natural gas. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, here's a little factoid. <laughs> so, when they uh, after they merged, they needed to come up with a new company name. Kenneth Lay apparently spent over a hundred thousand dollars on focus groups to come up with what name do you think they came up with? It wasn't Enron. It wasn't. Nope. How about uh, what were the two mergers? What were the names of the two companies that were merged? Is let me hold on, let me scroll up here. Okay, scroll, 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 scroll. <laughs> it was um, it was the Houston Houston Natural Gas and Enter North. <laughs> I don't know. Inter, intergas? I-N-T-E-R North. Inner North. Intergas. I don't know. Mm. I'm not a focus group. No. No, no. They came up with Interon. It's close to Enron. Yeah, it's close to Enron, but people were concerned that it kind of sounded like colon, you know, Interon, colon, I guess. I don't know. So they shortened it to just Enron. I wanted to know where that name came from. I was looking around for it. I did not see it. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. And it just blows my mind that they spent $100,000 to come up with Interon. I'm I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> I need to stop podcasting right now 
and go work coming up with company names. Because I could do better than Interon. I guarantee you I could do better than Interon. So if anybody listening wants to pay me, you know what? I'll give you a deal. This is $100,000 in 1985, which today would be like, I don't know what, like $100 million? Who knows with inflation. But I'll give you a deal. You know, after inflation, I'll cut it in half. All right. So I won't even include inflation, actually. Forget it. I'll just, for $50,000, I'll come up with a great name for your company. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a 1985 discount. I'll do it for 50000 <laughs> Any and all offers accepted. <laughs> all right. But anyways, fucking $100,000 for Interon. Holy shit, dude. Well, no wonder they went bankrupt. What the fuck? I just, I can't, I can't understand that. I don't know. That's a branding thing. A lot of companies do that nowadays. They hire a whole consulting company just for branding. I have an organization that I am a member of, which I will not say which one. And we had to- It's top secret. We had to vote on a, a new branding logo. I didn't think there was anything wrong with the logo we already had, but I did not like any of the new logos. I thought they were all bad. Was the old logo a choice? No, no, it was not. That's too bad. It, yeah. I mean, the old logo wasn't exciting or anything, and it certainly wasn't like recognizable. It was just like an acronym, but, but still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody got paid to do that. Oh my gosh. We're, we're 40 minutes in already. How's that even possible? And I'm only on fa- page four of uh, 23. <laughs> well, this sounds like it might be a multi, notes. multi-part episode. Yeah, we might have to pick this one up next week because there's the thing is, there's just so much to this case. There, There's so much. Like, I can't believe that we're already 40 minutes into it and we've barely even started. This is, That's crazy. But all right. So let's get, let's get into a little bit more here. So after that 100,000 focus group, Jesus. They, uh, <laughs> um, so they, they, uh, were mostly after the in 1985 post merger, they were mostly just a natural gas company and they started dabbling a little bit in electricity as well. So delivering electricity and natural gas, you know, mining the, the natural gas and producing, you know, just a pretty basic energy company. Right. But like I said, in the eighties, we had a deregulation push in the United States and the natural gas market was deregulated, which allowed for traders to speculate on the future prices. And this caused a great volatility in the market for natural gas. So we went to having more or less fixed prices or regulated prices that kept them reasonable. And in the 80s, when it was deregulated, now we have prices that will shoot up and down constantly depending on the market. And what the end result of this is basically people are allowed to buy and sell natural gas who have no intention whatsoever of delivering that gas to a a end user, right? To a home that needs it or whatever. They're just buying and reselling it. So now you've essentially with this free market, you've added extra middlemen, not just one middleman, but multiple middlemen who get to buy and sell and profit on this stuff. And who are often conspiring with one another. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll get into that. Boy, howdy, will we? But it, this free market, you know, it's sold as something that'll be more efficient. That's something they say a lot. It'll be more efficient. It will lower prices. 
But the end result, quite often to a free, completely free market that's deregulated like this, quite often ends up not just increasing prices, but increasing prices significantly. Significantly, the, the California energy crisis of 2000, 2001. Which we will get into for sure. All right. So Enron started branching out a little bit because of the deregulation, but also thing, also other things as well. So for example, there was the Valhalla oil scandal in 1987. Have you heard of this one? I have not. Why don't you uh, tell us about it? So Enron starts, instead of just drilling, refining, and transporting gas, natural gas or whatever, they started gambling in the markets. So betting on the future prices using futures or options or other sorts of financial instruments like that. Wait a minute, futures for their for natural gas, for something they're supplying? Yeah, that's not shady at all, oh, right? Oh. That's not some sort of conflict of Something interest. Something they can control and they're partnering with the uh, other... Yeah, yeah. Wow. But in 1987, a division of the company, Enron Oil, that was led by Louis, Louis Bourget, or Borget, Bourget, I don't know how you spell Bourgeois. that. Bourgeois. Bourgeois, yeah, not the bourgeoisie. But anyways, this department that was led by Louis Bourget began gambling on the price of oil. They were using... not gambling. Oh, I mean investing? There you go. No, it was gambling. They were using leveraged trades that could multiply gains, but would also multiply losses. And I won't get into the the nuts and bolts of how that works because it's a little bit complicated. But essentially, you know, if... Let's say if you buy... Normally, you buy a share in a company. You buy a $10 share of stock and it goes up to $11.00. Well, you've just made $1, right? You've made 10%. Hurrah! But if you're using leverage of some kind, whether you're using options or you're using margin or both or whatever, if it goes up 10%, you might double or triple your money. But if the trade goes against you, you might lose everything, right? So there were two traders that were named specifically or were, I guess, they, they were the people who were doing these trades, but it's hard to believe it was just two traders, but that's what, that's what it says in all the reports I could find. So two traders were gambling on the price of oil and they were using leveraged trades and with Enron's money. What was the division? It was a subdivision of Enron. Okay. One of the, one of their many, many subdivisions. So normally with these sorts of trades, it's very difficult to predict the future of the future price of certain markets, particularly markets like oil that have all sorts of political stuff going into it, like what OPEC decides to do next week, what domestic production decides to do, what the oil reserves decide to do. It's very, very complicated. There are a lot of moving pieces, very difficult to predict the future price. And oil markets, Enron didn't have much control over the oil markets, maybe other markets, but not oil So people would expect that you would win some and lose some, but somehow Enron, their department anyways, was winning like every time they were making tons of money with these trades, but tons of money, lots and lots of money, unrealistic amounts of money. Some people might say, right? But somebody became a few people became suspicious, but most people praise them for their ingenuity and skill at making money in new and creative ways that nobody had ever thought of before. 
Early on, there was an anonymous whistleblower, but that didn't really come to much. And while while these trades were happening, Bor- Borget was uh, Borget Borget, whatever his name is, was putting millions into personal accounts for himself. And there are some other traders doing this as well. So that in and of itself is highly, highly illegal. The traders were using, it turns out, they were actually losing money. And they were using a complicated scheme of offshore shell companies to hide their losses. So it looked like they were um, successful, but if they lost money, they would just hide it. They would hide that lost money in an offshore shell company. So it looked like they were making millions and millions of dollars, but they really weren't. Some of these shell companies had names such as Mr. M. Yass, Y-A-S-S. Or if you move the Y from Yass to M, Mr. My Ass. <laughs> really? <laughs> Mr. My Ass? Hey, what's hey, up, ETA? ETA? Mucho gusto. Me llamo Pelon. <laughs> My internet's ah. up. <laughs> all right. You got yourself all recording and stuff? Yeah, I'm already recording, yeah. Okay, sweet. Anderson was going on and on and on about Enron. I can tell he's super passionate about it. Well, this <laughs> is this is something that affected our lives directly. We'll get to that later. I think Ether, Agent Ether is going to talk a little bit about that particular aspect. But maybe not today because it's almost 9 o'clock. It's, yeah, we are already 48 minutes in, so we are probably not going to get through all of this. And yet we'll try. We No, we won't. Oh. <laughs> and we will not try. But yeah, <laughs> all of the shell companies had stupid names like that, and it was pretty brazen, right? Anybody auditing this stuff is going to look at that and think, my ass is not a real company. There's something weird going on here, right? <laughs> like They weren't even trying that hard to hide what they were doing. Uh, but anyways, there was an internal audit that revealed what was going on, and the results were presented to Kenneth Lay. What do you think Kenneth Lay did when he got the results of this audit and he found what the traders were doing? Uh, shred, shred, shred? No. Angry, He's... throwing fire? No. He sent them a memo saying, Please keep making us millions. <laughs> so he said, thumbs up, guys. Keep on keeping on. You guys are doing good work over there in the trading room, you know? Wow. <laughs> so it turns out that they actually lost a lot of money, though. It was reported originally as $85 million. $85 million. And I forget the time frame, but there was, I saw reports that they would lose like millions in single trades and like they would lose like 20 million in a week or whatever. I forget the numbers, but they lost a lot of money and they lost it quick, quick. This is in 87, by the way, when 85 million adjusted for inflation is, I, who knows? I don't know, 200 million, a billion. I don't know. It's a lot. So the real number that they hid with shell companies turned out to be something closer to like $190 million. That's a lot of cheddar. It was so much oh, yeah, money that it pretty much wiped out all of Enron's money. They were on the brink of bankruptcy based on this particular trading scandals. But as the story goes, one of the executives who was named uh, Muckleroy went to this particular division and got a copy of the books, found out what was going on, and he made some sort of bluff trade that saved the company. 
I couldn't find more details on that specific trade. I'm curious how he did that or what exactly he did. Maybe I could find detailed information if I looked harder, but there's so much to this case that I didn't really have time to spend. I couldn't spend that much time on any individual little piece of it, so I had to move on. I didn't know what this... But anyways, he did some sort of... He worked some kind of magic that saved the company. I'm not sure what that is specifically, but he did. Muckleroy, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty cool name. That that sounds like a name from like The Hobbit or something. I know, right? It's A lot of these names sound made up. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's kind of what i was getting at (laughs) yeah eventually there was some fallout from this and borgit was sent to jail for doing illegal stuff and that was pretty much the end of that particular scandal and the company chugged right along but this was sort of the beginnings of their you know their fraud and how they began to trade they they became like a trading company rather than a producing company, right? Now, in 1988, they did a major strategy shift to pursue unregulated markets, and they entered a lot of foreign markets to get into areas where the laws were, ooh, I don't know, a little shady. They built a power plant in Great Britain, for example. I guess Great Britain's electricity was unregulated at the time. Yeah, they had all sorts of problems, and even after the fallout with Enron, I was reading... That here in the United States, we put some regulations into place and they did not do that over in the UK. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of fallout from this nonsense. In 1989, Enron launched what they called the Gas Bank, allowing gas producers and wholesale buyers to purchase gas supplies and hedge price risk. And they also started offering financing to oil and gas producers. So now we're seeing a company transitioning from just producing natural gas to basically becoming a hedge fund or almost like a bank-like entity where they're offering financial products rather than actual physical products. They're like a middleman. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, because it's a lot easier. Let's say, let's compare software. Once you have the software, you can just keep replicating it. It's a lot easier to make money compared to you know, digging something out of the ground or actually manufacturing something. Now, I'm not I'm not being unfair to software people because I know it takes a lot of work to develop the software. It's just maybe a bad example, but that's what comes to mind, right? It's it's infinitely replicable versus something that you actually have to work to produce. You know, so they saw the potential there, um, and they also have the, uh, they owned a company, the Trans Western Pipeline, just as one example, that they stopped selling gas from the pipeline and used it as a transportation only pipeline. So you could pay them to transport your gas through the pipeline instead of them selling their own gas through it. So it's a a big shift, you know, a big shift in the company. Now in 1990, they became a natural gas market maker and started trading futures and options on the New York mercantile exchange. And they used, they came up with financial instruments such as swaps and options and derivatives and all this fun stuff that you may be familiar with if you lived through the 2008 meltdown. I was looking up all these different terms and it gets kind of convoluted. It does. And you you don't really need to understand these things in my opinion. All you need to know is that you have this black box 
<laughs> money goes in and money comes out. You don't need to know how it bounces around inside of the box, you know? All you need to know is where it's coming in from and where it's going out to, ultimately, you know, to really understand what's happening here. But what's happening here is they are becoming increased. They're doing riskier and riskier stuff over time. The goal being, like we talked about earlier with the company culture, the goal being to make more and more money over time. And in this case, the only way they could continue to make more and more money was to do stuff that was riskier and riskier. And, you know, the thing with risky stuff is you're not going to win all the time. What's up, Agent Ether? Medicine. Okay, she's got to go give the cryptids their medicine. All right, so in 1991, Enron, Enron hired a dude named Skilling, who's pretty central to this story. So what was his first name? Jeffrey Skilling, I think. I, I think I said mentioned him before already. He is like a central figure to this story, and he actually eventually became the CEO of Enron briefly, you know, in 2000 or 2001. He wasn't the CEO for very long, but he was at some point, he worked his way all the way up the company to become the CEO. So he was hired in 1991. And one of the things that he demanded when he was hired was that they change their accounting methods from the generally accepted accounting principles or whatever they were doing, you know, the normal accounting to something called mark-to-market accounting. Now, I don't want to get into all the the minutiae of mark-to-market accounting, but this is a really big part of the story. Now, what mark-to-market is, is that it's a form of accounting that allows people to claim a value that they say, okay, this is the value. And this is what the value will be in the future. And it allows them to take profits that don't actually exist. Again, I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritties because it gets pretty complicated in some ways. But basically, it would allow them, let's say they open up a power plant, right? It would allow them to book profits on, let's say, the next 10 years. And they could book those profits today before they even happen based on what they say the value is going to be. Oh, are you talking about, what is it, market to mark or mark to market? Mark to market, yeah. Mark to market. And this, so this form of accounting does have legitimate uses and it goes back a number of years, possibly even hundreds of years. So it's, it's not a scam in and of itself, but the way Enron used it was to book profits that didn't actually exist and in some cases, they used it to claim profits on things that were losing money. Like uh, Blockbuster. Oh, do you, want, do you want to tell us about the old internet scheme there? I do. So back in 2000, Blockbuster and Enron got together and they're like, let us do something that has not been done yet. Oh, wait, wait. Before you do that, I just want to say one more thing about this form of accounting. It was actually uh, their... Their third-party accountant firm, Arthur Anderson, signed off on the accounting, and the SEC approved it. The SEC approved this method of accounting for Enron. I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Please continue. <clears throat> so, what was I saying? Oh, so, in 2000, Blockbuster and Enron got together, 
and they said, let's deliver a streaming service. Had not been done before. Now, this is when the interwebs was somewhat new, and when you went to stream something, it was very poor quality. Right. We're talking back in the days when a lot of people were still on dial-up, and you might have to spend a good six hours to download a naughty video, for example. Not that I would do that sort of thing from experience because I was actually I would I was actually too poor in 2000 to actually afford dial-up so I didn't <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I didn't even have dial-up guys do you remember the dial-up the tone oh yeah yeah that good old so sound so yeah. noisy and this was actually a part of a larger effort by Enron to have an internet service they bought a warehouse and some fiber assets some you know fiber optics and they were trying to become um, like they were trying to basically own the internet, but that's maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, later. they were definitely looking towards the future. They were yeah. thinking about how they could expand, and in that they were a unique company. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyways, this deal ended up falling through, and I read a couple of different reasons why. I don't know which one is correct. One reason people speculated was that movie studios just didn't want this stuff released on the internet. They didn't have the rights, and they wanted them to continue to rent and pay for the movies. They didn't want it available on some sort of, you know, streaming on-demand service. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I just saying like a, one of the big things that uh, made profit from a lot of movies that were released back in those days were DVD sales, you know, and, and that was uh, once stuff started being released like on the internet and that, you know, that takes away from that. So like, you know, some, sometimes there, there were movies that were released and, and they made like, you know, a small amount of money in, you know, in the actual movie theaters, but then they would make up that with the uh, DVD sales. Yeah, and this is when, believe it or not, this is when Netflix was still sending out videos by mail. I remember, remember yeah, Yeah. I remember how excited I was. I was like, we get three videos, like three new videos. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was a really good deal. It would suck sometimes because, like, you get like a scratched uh, disc and you're like, ah, crap, I got to send this one back, you know, like, this ain't going to work, you know? Yeah, that was even before, like, uh, I think, was Redbox a thing at that time, too? Or was that a little bit later? Which, what you cut out there, ETA, what was that? Oh, I was saying, was Redbox a thing at that time, too? It was coming, but it wasn't a thing yet. yet. Not yet. So, I looked it up, and Netflix apparently still does their DVD by mail service, and I'm tempted to sign up for it just for nostalgia's sake, you know? (laughs) Just so it can get (laughs) stolen in the mail. Yeah, and... Just by the way, just just to demonstrate how sometimes I can be a real dummy, when when Netflix did started their streaming service and they they uh, split off. So originally, when they started their streaming service, it just sort of came with your membership of DVD mailing stuff. Like they didn't charge anything extra for it. When they broke that off and made it a separate for pay for service, you know, at first I was like, these guys are morons. What are they doing? This is stupid. <laughs> Their stock price, <laughs> their stock price plummeted, and that was like one of those once in a lifetime chances to get in on something before it became big. But I was like, dude, these guys are morons. Well, this is never going to work. I remember this. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I these guys are this. idiots. What are they thinking? So yeah, hey, I can't be right all the time, and sometimes I am 
very, very wrong. Well, if it's any <laughs> consolation, uh, Blockbuster and Netflix were supposed to have a deal. Blockbuster was supposed to buy Netflix, and they backed out. Wow. Yeah, so bad management decision there. So I guess I'm not the only moron out there. (laughs) And now there's only one uh, blockbuster left in the world, right? I think it closed, actually. No. Oh, did it? Yeah. It's an end of an era. I wonder if you could license Blockbuster and do like sort of a cafe or something. That'd be pretty fun. That'd be fun for sure. Yeah. Oh, wait, I should edit that out. That's a good idea. Maybe I'll use that. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. It's already out there in the ether. Now somebody else is going to steal my idea. So another reason I read why the deal fell through is Enron just decided the demand or the technology wasn't there yet. Just too early, too early on. Um, Another reason was that Enron had no money. So it actually couldn't do testing because it had no money. Someone else said their boxes caught fire during testing. Don't Hmm. know if that's true or not. And Hmm. uh, finally that they did test it, but everybody at headquarters used it and nobody in the testing area used it. And they decided that it didn't have any demand. So what I saw of the technology is that it just didn't work. And that's why it didn't get off the ground. Um, Yeah, maybe. Either way. I don't know. Either way, yeah. Either way, Enron recorded $111 million in revenue for something that never came to fruition. Right, because they were using the mark-to-market accounting, which allowed them to book profits in the future based on what they felt the service would be worth rather than the money that they actually collected. And I love that because they projected 110, 111 in profit. Like, how do you do that for a technology and service that is non-existent? Do you just like pull a number out of the air? Well, okay. So imagine that that was a service that you had, you know, a video on demand service that was across the country, it was national, potentially international, that number could actually be lo- on the lower side. That's my point though. Yeah. This number, where, how is it generated? It just comes out of thin air. You're just like, well, this yeah. is our estimate per person. And we're going to, it's kind of like the, uh, what is it? The Drake equation? Yeah. You can just sort of fudge it however <laughs> you want. Yeah. <laughs> So we have this situation, and then we have um, someone coming in, and he's a, gosh, who is he? He's some sort of, like an activist, I think. Let me see. Oh, the short seller? Yeah. So you have the short seller coming in, and he's like, this doesn't look this doesn't look right. Something's wrong. Oh, he's a Wall Street analyst, too. He's a short yeah. seller and a Wall Street analyst. And his name is Richard Grubman. And he would be described as a pain in the butt and an asshole by uh, Skilling. Oh, yeah. That's a different one than I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. No, so that was one of the famous incidents was there's a, there was an investor call. So what happens is typically for most of these publicly traded companies is they'll have investor calls where uh, every quarter when they release their quarterly earnings Um, Not just any investor, not like you and me, but like prominent investors or prominent analysts can call in. I think it's, I think they call it an earnings call and they can ask questions, right? 
Sometimes, yeah. sometimes journalists will call in. Sometimes it's analysts. It's usually like, you know, people who work for the Wall Street Journal and that kind of know. a thing. I I feel like we are talking about the same thing. I have a transcript no, no. here of a call. I was I was thinking of a different uh, short seller. Oh, you have the transcript. Okay, so I was going to, yeah, please tell us All what right, was let's said. let's see. Let's see if we're thinking about the same thing. Okay. So this is a conference call. It's an infamous Enron conference call that took place on April 17th, 2001. So just- A, a public, public conference call pub- that- Right before- That anybody can listen in on if they want. Right. So the operator comes on. And she says, Richard Grubman of Highfield Capital. And Grubman says, good morning. Can you tell us what the assets and liabilities from price risk management were at the quarter end? What those balances were? And Skilling says, we don't have the balance sheet completed. We will have that done shortly when we file the Q, which I think means quarterly. Yeah, the Q10 or whatever. Yeah. But until we put all of that together, we just cannot give you that. And Grubman replies, I'm trying to understand why that would appear to be an unreasonable request in light of your comments about daily control of all your credits. I mean, you have a trading desk with a $21 million matchbook price that's two times your book value and you cannot tell us what your balances are. Skilling says, I'm not saying we can't tell you what the balances are. We clearly have all of those positions on a daily basis. But at this point, we will wait to disclose those until all of the netting and the right accounting is put together. And Grubman says, you're the only financial institution that cannot produce a balance sheet or cash flow statement with their earnings. And what does Skilling say? He says, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And Grubman kind of repeats, we appreciate that. And Skilling says, Asshole. Asshole. <laughs> but but S- Skilling, he like stutters before that because he's like totally taken aback. And he's like, uh, 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 uh. Right. Uh, thank you for the question. Asshole. Kind of, you know, you can look up the recording. It's out there. And he swears up and down. He says, <laughs> we're working together. They're working together as a group to purposefully attack the stock. But if they go out, they're starting to spread rumors to make money. That's inappropriate. He was trying to spread disinformation and insinuate things. Yeah, oh, he was insinuating all kinds <laughs> of things, yeah. And this this was towards the end. It was. This was like when the cracks were starting to show when the insiders were the insiders knew that the end was nigh and I I mean, I've never run a company, but I imagine the closest thing I can think of is like you know, your final exams are approaching and you haven't studied a bit all semester. And you know, and you, you just know. You know you're going to fail and you just you just keep pretending, maybe I can somehow pull it out at the last minute, you know. <laughs> but like they know that things are starting to crumble and this is when everybody's under a lot of stress and you, you can, this is the first time publicly that you start to see the cracks showing. So this is a this is a pretty significant conversation actually in the whole story, and we're probably getting a like little I bit said, ahead of ourselves. Yeah, infamous. Yeah, it's it's sort of an important part of the story though because this is when Skilling is one of the. So we don't know exactly who was in charge of what. So Kenneth Lay was he you know he was the head boss of everything, but Skilling was probably. 
He was like the second, maybe. But he Skilling was basically the the guy, the conductor, the guy who came up with all this stuff. He was the guy who insisted on mark to market accounting. He was the guy who came up with a lot of the schemes that got everybody in trouble. And you get the impression that, you know, Kenneth Lay definitely knew what was going on, but he didn't necessarily come up with stuff, but he was also a cheerleader of stuff that looked like it was making a butt ton of money, you know? Yeah. That's sort of the impression I get. But yeah, that was a that was a very, very important event in the story. All right. So we're at um a little over an hour here, about an are, hour twelve. Are we? We started a little late. No, I mean that's when I hit record though. Oh. Oh dear. That's what the that's what the the time the time. Does that mean is. it's time to watch Doctor Who? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan. But that does mean I think let's call it quits here and let's pick it up next week and do like a part two because I won't I won't be here next week though. I will be in oh, training. Shit. We could do it on Saturday. Okay, let's do it Saturday. Yeah. We could do like a second and then you could do a different topic Friday. I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll figure something out. But yeah. um there's there's so much more to this case to talk about. We've we've only just started. Yeah, I still have stuff to talk about. And I feel like I didn't even take that many notes that I'm like, yeah. I still have so much to say. I'm only on page nine out of twenty-three of my notes. And my notes, by the way, are it's only a very I took notes only on a very small percentage of what actually happened because there's just there's scandals within scandals. There's so much shenanigans to this case. It's true. And I just cherry pick topics and I still have tons of stuff to talk yeah. about. Yeah. She found what a 58 page paper on the, the 2000 energy crisis. I looked at like journal articles from Duke university. I'm such oh, a nerd. <laughs> I was like, Oh, somebody wrote about corruption and they used Enron as an example. And I was like looking at it. it I was like, oh, it's 58 pages, and I read it anyways. I got all sucked in. Oh, I love it. I, I can't. I did not read this paper, and I can't wait to hear about it. So anyways, that's all we got for you this week. Thanks so much for listening. And um, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, we really appreciate that. That's where we got this topic chosen from. This week, our Patreon bonus episode was, what was it? You're asking the wrong person. I've been working all week. We just did it yesterday, but it's been a hell of a week. I did taxes this week, so. Yeah, those were fun. I'm like, I am I mean, I was sick and then I got behind because of that. Now I'm behind this week because I did taxes and I still have this episode and another episode that hey, I haven't recorded yet. my notes yet. are printing. I hate that printer. <laughs> we, we, we did a cattle mutilation. That's right. Cattle mutilations. That's right. This week's bonus, bonus episode on Patreon was cattle mutilation. <laughs> okay, guys. So. About an hour and a half ago, I tried to print my notes and they're printing right now. And they're probably going to print twice because I hit the print button twice. This printer is a piece of crap. You know, it will, <laughs> it's, it's a Canon printer and Canon, I have this printer from them and I also have a camcorder. The hardware is really good, but the software is just absolute shit. It's now just, I have something to burn in the fireplace. I know. Fire. It's just really bad. Like <laughs> I don't I don't know who's programming their stuff, but they need to get their stuff together, man, because it's not good. This is not an advertisement. Do not buy stuff from Canon because it sucks. I spilled sake <laughs> and I'm sad. And if anybody from Canon is listening listening to me, I'm more than happy to take your money to change my opinion. 
<laughs> but all right. So let's get out of here for this week. Thank you so much for listening and peace out for this time. Keep it strange. <laughs>